right. So, good. What time is it? Good afternoon. Uh, it's Maj McDowell. And other than this being part of the George Kennan um, podcast or group, this is going to be a one-on-one interview with a very, very, very good friend of mine, uh, Tyrese Garvey, who's in the UK actually right now. Works in energy policy. But Tyrese, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm swell. <laughs> well, I haven't heard that word in like two weeks, but you know, uh, we're here to talk about, you said you have a particular topic that you want to talk about dealing with climate change, but also it's, uh, it's contributions to, uh, terrorism or growth of violence, uh, whether that's Africa, um, or just in general, but the floor is yours. Um, this episode should be about 20, 25 minutes. Um, just to keep something nice and short. I don't want to keep up your entire day. So, Tyrese, the floor is yours. Fantastic. Thanks for having me on the uh, on the podcast. It's, uh, it's, it's great. It's great being here. So, yeah, I just wanted to highlight uh, really how um, climate change and uh, global warming has influenced and contributes to uh, terrorism and conflict globally. And... Um, might also touch on um, the UK energy crisis as well, maybe, because I've got a bit to say about that. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know much about the UK uh, energy crisis, so I'm here to learn, and you're the teacher. Yes, yeah, so in fact, you know what? We'll start off with the, the UK energy crisis, because I think um, that's becoming more of a pertinent um, issue um, in, in, in recent events, really. Um so the UK energy crisis, uh, to be fair, it's a European energy crisis, but the UK is being heavily affected at the moment. And that's because we rely on, uh, most of our energy comes from overseas. Um, and we're, we're very reliant on Russia indirectly with our, um, with our energy. So, for example, we'll get it from Norway, but Norway will get it from Russia or we'll get it from France. But France gets it, from, gets it from Russia, and this is all. Um, well, you know, there's no way of, uh, of pinning it down and say, yeah, this is this is why this is happening. But if you, if you look through the lines, you can see, okay, maybe this is uh, in the Russian playbook. Maybe this is something that they're uh, they've they fabricated. Because if you look at uh, uh, Russian activity throughout Europe, including their disinformation and PSYOPs campaigns with Brexit, uh, we now find ourselves in the UK paying for more, uh, paying more for energy than ever before. So this is that, so this is, uh, that we can, so we can become more dependent on Russian uh, liquefied natural gas or LNG and the import of Russian gas. Um, and you know, if we break and we start buying gas from gas in the millions, then our ability to question Russian aggression is really, really hindered. Uh, just like we're seeing currently with the West, uh, rest of Europe, and especially Germany, who imports, I think it's uh, up to 75% of their gas from Russia. Mm-hmm. So um, that's mental. And you know, this does tie into climate change because uh, I work in the uh, solar energy industry. So I'm a bit biased here, but uh, <laughs> I, I would say from a professional and an analytical point of view, our best bet to fight against Russia without sending any troops in, and of course keeping up with the sanctions and continuing to fund the Ukrainian military, is to heavily invest in renewable energy, uh, predominantly solar energy, 
Um, you know, the sun is always shining, but you know, recent reports in the UK has found that wind isn't always blowing. Mm. So, uh, solar is really the ultimate weapon, and, and you know, big benefit of solar energy is um, you know the benefit it has on the environment as well. Uh, it lowers pollution, and in hand, this is like a nice segue now into the fact that climate change has a major effect on the conflicts that we've seen in recent years and conflicts to be seen in the future as well. Um, so, you know, bettering the environment, lowering pollution can limit terrorism and, and can limit resource conflicts overseas, which play a major role in our international security, like we've seen in the past with the Syrian drought, which led to civil unrest and created the situation that we see there today. So the Inter International Organization for Migration estimates that, uh, that the amount of people displaced from climate change will be 200 million people. That's, that's a 1,000% a increase from what figures were in 2008. That's, a, that's one in 45 people globally will be forcibly displaced from climate change. Sorry, just displaced from climate change. We found 21 million people were forcibly displaced by extreme weather between 2008 and 2016. We can imagine how many more uh, were displaced from the slow onset of uh, climate change, such as rising sea levels and increased temperatures in some areas. Um, yeah, all of this plays a hand in, 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 in pushing groups of people into new areas, and you've got then you've got uh, you know power imbalances, etc., mm. etc. In October 2021, so this is last year. October, the White House released a report stating that there was a strong link between climate change migration and conflict, saying that climate-related impacts may further stress vulnerable communities, increasing the risk of conflict and displacement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like I said, this is because climate change can exacerbate resource scarcity and threaten biodiversity, bringing conflicts over food and economic security. So... Um, and I know you've written a, a, a report about this previously, haven't you, Smudge? <laughs> um, I have. It's um, it's just interesting, though, uh, when a lot of people, when they like to have the conversations on you know, what, uh, what can potentially contribute to the growth of terrorism or just resource-based violence, uh, one of the sources, as you just pointed out, and it's not really talked about, but should be talked about, is that of climate change. Um, if you look at the Chad River Basin, for example, um, I mean, we're looking at an area where you have Islamic militants, farmer-based militants, ethnic-based militants, um, political, um, politically-based dissidents, all looking to acquire whatever remains of... Uh, you know, the Chad River Basin natural resources, including water, um, as a means to establish some sort of uh, dominance in a given geographic region. Um, we even see the climate change impacting on traditional African transhumans uh, migration. Uh, and what I mean by transhumans is essentially uh, when, I won't call them hunter-gatherers, but essentially much more traditional uh, societies where they migrate with the patterns of animals. 
um, with climate change essentially upending and disrupting um, animal migration patterns that's significantly uh, impacting negatively transhumans patterns in a lot of sub-Saharan or Sahel um, located African nations, especially since a lot of these African nations, a good substantial chunk of their uh, GDP or even social identity stems from the much more agrarian activities uh, of the economy. And so even when we look at um, the current situation that's going on in Libya, a lot of uh, Africans that were unfortunately caught in that situation, the ongoing situation, and sold into human trafficking weren't really Libyans. We're talking about Chadians, we're talking about um, Malians, and other neighboring nations who are trying to leave the area to get to Europe. But unfortunately, uh, a lot of these militia organizations, they represent, or they attempt to represent themselves in false pretenses as easy avenues or safe avenues to at least get to either Italy or France. But unfortunately, the people that they ruse for money, they're then sold into human trafficking. Uh, it was interesting enough to go back to your, your first point with uh, England, and that, that, that has me raised the question, what can essentially, in your, in your view, uh, what could England do, or even Western Europe do, um, to increase the promotion of um, trying to wean off on a Russian energy supply, especially when it comes to climate change, because as we've seen, Vladimir Putin or even Russia or Russian elites are not too concerned about climate change impacts since they need the natural resources that are um, under permafrost or even looking to melt the, uh, the, the Arctic Ocean as you know, Russia owns 53% of the territory that's in the Arctic Ocean. Um, there's over at least 50 billion untapped uh, barrels of oil and natural gas with extensive tr a trillion cubic feet of natural gas that are still in the Arctic Ocean um, within Russia's borders. Russia wants essentially climate change to happen so that they can get the resources to further assert their dominance. So in your opinion, what could potentially the UK, the EU, Western Europe, uh, what are some potential policy avenues that could be... Um, um, promoted um, to kind of weaken this, this Russian strategy to utilize climate change. Yeah, 100%. Um, what you said there is completely correct. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that, you know, a big drive for the, uh, for the Russian invasion of Ukraine is the fact that I think going back 2012, 2010, I think Shell did um, oil exploration, Shell, Shell, what was it, Shell gas, Shell, mm. Shell oil exploration in Ukraine and found got a large um, deposits of shell gas in uh, eastern Ukraine mm -hmm. uh, west Ukraine and uh, just in, in the in the ocean next to Sevastopol mm -hmm. so I mean it kind of marries up with the existence of the uh, LPR DPR and the fact that they right. annex yeah so you know shell goes hey there's there's, there's some natural resources over here and Russia starts ripping their hands <laughs> So, you know, um, I saw that. I've seen that once come mm -hmm. up. 
I'm not I'm not going to take that as gospel, but it would marry up. It would make sense. But anyway, going back to um, you know, policies and, and things that the EU and the UK can do to uh, combat this uh, Russian aggression for natural resources and also their contribution to climate change as well. Um, we, we, what we need to do, especially in the UK, is really, really subsidise solar energy or renewable energy as a whole. We, we, we're big investors of wind at the moment. We, we've got a lot to do with wind, which is really good. I think a lot of our energy comes from wind. We've also been able to be coal-free for a number of days. You, you'll see it in the news all the time. You, the UK goes coal-free for a week. We haven't used any coal. We're really getting rid of coal. We do need to get rid of our gas, but that's going to be that's going to be a, a long time coming, and that's going to need a lot of government influence. But at the moment, this is me getting a little bit political. <laughs> our, our our government is very much in the hands of uh, large corporations at the moment, um, and it's, it's going it's to be very hard to kind of make those big changes uh, very quickly. Mm-hmm. So I mean the. Tory government, Conservative government, or our government rather, has come out and said, you know, oh, we need, we're going to we're going to wean ourselves off of gas, of Russian gas, Russian energy. It's all going to go away. And you know, Germany uh, shut down the, um, the Nord Stream two project. Um, that's gone. That's in the bin. So we are making big changes in in the EU and in the UK to kind of get rid of this this um, this dependency of Russian energy. But the best thing that we can do is really focus on renewable energy. Mm-hmm. One, it's better for the environment. It stops climate change. Well, it uh, you know dampens the effects of climate change, which then you you know you won't have these conflicts over resources. You won't have droughts, and you won't have um, you know because what you get then after war you get a migration mm-hmm. uh, crisis that we see we've been seeing now for years from Syria. Um, you know, if we if we cared about the climate, mm-hmm. I would have never happened. But yeah, in short, um, renewable energy is, is is the best bet for the EU and for the UK. I mean, if you look at China, China are increasing their their solar power yeah. um, uh, capabilities. Uh, I forget what it is now. I think it might be uh, thirty gigawatts. No, more than that. So I, I can't remember. No, it's definitely more than 30 gigawatts. <laughs> I can't it's, remember what the is. It's just interesting, the though, that, um, I mean, but that is, a, to prove your point, um, green energy, um, for at least in China, has been a heavy topic um, following, leading up to Xi Jinping's presidency in 2012, um, and definitely since his, uh, during his presidential tenure, and they had... Uh, he speaking of that, I just got a notification that Germany and Netherlands will now drill for gas in the North Sea. Um, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> um, oh yeah, I just got that as well. Atlas News. Yeah. yeah, there we go. Shout out to my friends over at Atlas News. Um, but um, China, according to Xi Jinping's philosophy and his attitude towards green energy, uh, was that essentially, although the Mao Zedong area era for them were very, was very crucial that they didn't they're kind of replicating what Khrushchev did to Stalin where there was like yeah Stalin, uh, Mao himself and his policies 
I don't know how he treated fellow Chinese are inherently wrong, but his industrialization policies put us on the current path. But what they understand is that his mass industrialization policies uh, significantly increased uh, pollution um, to dangerous levels um, in, in China. I mean, to the point where in some cases we've seen where pollution and smog have gotten so bad, either you can't see in front of you or schools had to be canceled literally because it was a breathing hazard. Um, there are some fortunate, you know, there are news of uh, genetic, literal genetic impacts um, that pollution is having on, uh, on Chinese births. Um, but Xi Jinping is, in his view, as he's attempting to venerate um, classical Chinese environmental beauty um, before mass industrialization occurs. So we're talking about anywhere between 600 and 1,000 years ago, or even before then, where um, in a lot of the, the lofty language that Xi Jinping and the CCP likes to utilize in their policies, they want to go back to where you know the waters are clear, the skies are blue, the grass is green, um, and you know uh, livestock um, is completely edible. Uh, without any sort of, um, you know, uh, pesticide contaminations, etc. So as you stated, green energy um, is a, is a, has been a very big push uh, for the Chinese government over the past decade. Um, but as we also know with China, they like to utilize dual-use uh, technology. So they are able to produce any type of technology in, in green energy that's good for civilian then if it's good for a civilian, then hopefully we can try to find some way to incorporate it within military. Um, and with green energy, if you're able to, you know, wean off or produce any type of military technology where you're no longer, you're not as dependent on steady sources of, of oil or some type of diesel electric uh, for your your weapons, whether it's submarines or APCs or IFVs or main battle tanks, MPTs, uh, and they can be primarily based off of some type of solar technology or some type of cleaner um, uh, nuclear energy. Uh, well, what does that then mean for the environment or new phase of warfare if it's based off of, of green energy? Um, but you, you brought up some some good points and. You know, we've been talking about 20 minutes, so I'm not going to take up any longer of your day, Tyree. So it's always good to talk to you and, and see you, and hopefully I'll be able to have you back on soon. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I'm, I'm always free. All righty. Well, good to see you. Good to see you, too. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, sure, bit.